Join me in going to God in prayer. Father, we're about to open a text that we've read, many of us, a thousand times. The text we're so familiar with that probably familiarity has made us really unfamiliar with what it is that your son was trying to say as he gave it. So, Father, as we just prayed, asking for you to reveal your glory to us, God, I just pray that you would do just that and help us to realize what it means to be partakers of the divine nature, being called to just following the footsteps of our Savior. So, Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of opening the Word, and we pray that you would speak to us as we read familiar words in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen, amen. Uh, Thank you, uh, team. Great to uh, be with you this morning as we conclude our three-week series entitled On the Stump. Today's message is a message entitled Hope for a Worried People. Hope for a Worried People. With this message, I am going to continue the thought that I had in week number one. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, you'd have heard me share a message entitled People, Parties, and Sects. S-E-C-T-S. And in that message, I shared how in a divided nation, Jesus stepped in and lived out the kingdom manifesto. He didn't step back and hunker down. I shared in that message how Jesus and his intention was not to form a new political party, but to call people, to draw people to him from different walks of life, different people, with different experiences, with different philosophies, and his ambition was to change these people, to, in a sense, convert these people to the kingdom manifesto that was going to be lived out through him. And once he'd done that, his goal was to send them back into the worlds and into the communities that they came from in order to bring that message of change that Jesus really believed the people needed to hear. So again, I ended with this idea that what God wants for each and every one of us is to be rewired and recommissioned as we hear the Jesus manifesto. Well, today we're going to look at a passage, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, that you, we will have read a thousand times at least. Many of us will probably be able to recite it, but I want us to turn there because I believe that there's something that God wants us to note as we think about living today in what I believe to be a very divided nation. If you need a copy of the Scriptures to follow along with us this morning, all you need to do is to raise your hands in the air, and our ushers would be delighted to give you a copy of the Scriptures. So if you need a copy, all you need to do, raise your hands in the air. Once you've got the the Scriptures, all you need to do is to turn to page 971, 
and we will begin to read this text together. Matthew chapter 6, from verse 25. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can anyone of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed, like, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How many, how many of you, uh, hands up, have never read that passage before? Anybody in here? We're all pretty familiar with this, right? It's a passage that we will go to in times of distress, in times of concern. Now, does anybody want to guess what the key idea is in that passage? It's worry, right? Worry is the key word in this passage. Now, in case we forget it, Okay, I've got a little symbol to help us with this. Worry is the key word in the passage. It occurs six times. Six times. Now, the obvious question is, why does Jesus make worrying such a big deal? Remember the background here. The background is, this is the first time that Jesus speaks. There are crowds with him. These crowds have been are drawn to him from pretty much everywhere. There are pagans there. There are Gentiles there. There are Jews there. And amongst this mixed group, Jesus has started to collect all of his disciples. He hasn't finished collecting them all. Remember, Matthew doesn't get called until Matthew chapter 9. And out of this crowd, he draws the disciples to him, and then he starts to teach them. And then, no sooner as he passed the Beatitudes and he deals with different things, then he starts to teach on this idea of worry. And the question is, why? Why is this idea of combating worry at the heart of the Jesus Manifesto. 
I want to suggest to you that by the time this message is done, you will understand something, not simply about worry, you will understand major portions of Paul's writings to the church in Corinthians, in Corinth, about what the body needs to do when a nation is divided. So why does Jesus address worry? Jesus addresses worry because it was a major issue. Worry's a big deal. Now, specifically, I want to suggest to you that Jesus addresses worry for two reasons. Firstly, he addresses the issue of worry because he is an inspirational leader who triggered people's imagination. Now, this may, may seem strange to you, but go with me a second. Jesus has ministered in chapter 4, and he's healed people. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, the end of the chapter, you'll see him ministering to people, and the text tells us that he ministered and he healed every sickness and every disease. He is blowing people's minds. People who were lame can walk. People who were deaf can hear. People who were mute can speak. And they're thinking, who is this guy? Imagination. How is this guy doing this? Imagination. He's getting them to wonder and to ponder. And whenever you wonder and you ponder, you imagine. To be a person of vision is essentially to be a person who has a picture of the future. It hasn't happened yet, but you can see it. You can imagine it. Paul in Ephesians says, Now to God who is able to do abundantly more than we ask, think, or even imagine. Jesus addresses the issue of worry because he's an inspirational leader. And inspirational leaders recognize that when you trigger the God-given capacity to dream of a future, what is possible to be used for the positive is also possible to be used negatively. What enables us to dream big and positive and happy can also be used by the adversary and through the natural happenings of life itself can be used for the negative. We can start to wonder. Well, if I step out in faith, Torrin may have said, and, and sell my house and, and move to Grand Rapids, what if my kids don't settle? What if the church doesn't actually grow? What am I leaving behind? What if all of this goes wrong? What if? To be a person of faith, to be willing to take a step in, which is what Jesus did, exposes us to the reality that our mind, in our mind it is possible to think about everything that could go wrong. 
There's a guy by Edward Hallowell, is a Harvard um, a professor. He has written some phenomenal books on a whole host of practical issues. He is a Christian, and he uses his faith in great ways through a lot of his writings. And in one of his books, he's written on the theme of worry. If you are a worrier, you need to buy this book. It is an awesome book. Hallowell says this, the what-ifs are the relentless, relentless stream of thoughts that can rush in and amplify a simple worry. Anybody want to know why I like that book? I just love that phrase. Central exists to amplify hope, right? To, to, to get people to think that the despair, the despondency that's there, it can be changed. But the problem is, the relentless stream of thoughts can rush in and amplify a simple worry. A single worry can kindle a whole bonfire of anxiety. When the what-ifs take off, there can be no end to them. This is partially because real life offers no end to the what-ifs. Jesus addresses the theme of worry because he's an inspirational leader. And whenever you inspire people to think of the future, even positively, you have to take into account that the very possibility of thinking positive allows for the fact that we can think negative. Bad things will happen. And then when you've taken that step of faith, it is possible to, to allow what God has intended for good to rob you of the joy and, descend into a, and it can descend into a spiral that is bad. So Jesus addresses the theme because he's inspirational. And inspirational people deal with real issues. Secondly, though, he addresses the theme of worry because they had a lot to worry about. The people who were standing around Jesus were attracted to him because he was making a difference. He was making such a difference to their world and to their life, and in them there was this hope being awakened that for many, their miserable existence could be transformed. Now, I want to suggest to you that the mention of food and clothes in this text, these are not general examples, they're real concerns. I want to suggest to you that when Jesus talks about food and clothes, he's not plucking two ideas out of the air. He's actually addressing real issues that these people standing around Jesus struggled with. He's not addressing issues that are universal. He's addressing issues that are real to the people that are there. They were worried about food. Famine was a reality in that period of history over and over again. And so he addresses the issue of food and clothes because these people standing around him were worried about what to eat and about what to drink. That may seem surprising to us, but then for some of us, it may not be surprising at all. We worry about what we eat and what we drink too, don't we? I came across something that was labeled the final word on nutrition. 
The Japanese apparently eat very little fat and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or the Americans. The French eat a lot of fat and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or the Americans. The Japanese drink very little red wine and suffer fewer heart attacks than the British or the Americans. The Italians, on the other hand, they drink excessive amounts of red wine and also suffer fewer heart attacks than the British and the Americans. And the Germans, well, take it from me, they drink lots of beer, they eat lots of sausages, lots of fatty food, and they suffer fewer heart attacks than the British and the Americans. So all of you who are worrying about what you eat or drink, don't. It's clearly speaking English that kills you. That's the point. <laughs> Many of us worry about what we eat. Okay, we're in a nation, right, that the packaging is important. How many preservatives are we taking in? What, what are we eating? But this is a different reality that these people are facing. The reality that these people are facing is actually being pointed out by a guy called Keener in his commentary. I thought about putting his words on the, on the screen. It's simply too long. But listen to Keener as he describes the reality of life that these people who are listening to Jesus are dealing with. Kena writes, everyday life in the cities of the ancient world was far different than even the most difficult circumstances of life in the modern world. With limited water and means of sanitation, the incredible density of humans and animals is beyond our imagining. The people to whom Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount may have included some of the wealthy, but the vast majority of them are peasants who live most of their lives hand to mouth, eking out a living from the Galilean countryside. What they can produce from the land goes for food supplies until the next harvest, feed for their work animals, extra seed for the year's crop, and enough to sell or barter for other necessities. But whether they work their own land or are tenant farmers, they are required to pay any surplus as taxation to the dominant group of rulers. Remember, we told you that could be as high as 40 to 70%, who use it to underwrite their own high standard of living. Not surprisingly, Keener writes, one of the significant phenomena of this time period was the rise of revolutionary movements that sought to elevate the plight of the poor by overturning the back-breaking grip that the wealthy landowners had on the economic and political life of the region. Are you seeing this? It was the very harsh reality of life that drove the rise in the parties and the sects that we looked at in week number one. And so when Jesus talks here about food and clothes, he's not plucking a general reality out of the air. He is actually engaging with a very real need of a very troubled nation. Jesus steps in. His manifesto steps in to the troubles, the concerns, and the worries that people had. This idea that it's a specific 
issue that Jesus is addressing is supported by the fact that men, secular historians like Tacitus okay, and Josephus write about the conditions of life back then. Tacitus respond, writes about the, the severe famines that were happening. He says that in Rome at this point in time, there were probably about 15 days of food that was left in any given period. Josephus tells a horrible story about Roman soldiers who were hungry going into a village and smelling what seemed like cooked meat. This is horrific. The soldiers, as Josephus tells the story, goes up and he sees a woman sitting on the floor and they've noticed that as they're getting closer to the woman, the woman is kind of covered over the food. The soldiers go to the woman and say, what are you eating? And she then kind of uncovers the blanket, and they see that she, who the only thing she had left was her baby, she actually killed her baby, cooked her baby, ate half of her baby, and said, the only thing I can offer you is the other half of my child. The soldiers were so disgusted by this that they actually left, and the and the story went around that no one should ever enter that village again. You get my point here? This is a real issue. Jesus talks here about the need for food and clothes because people were worried about food. They were worried about clothes. He didn't pluck an example out of the air. He dealt with the concerns that a really troubled people in a very divided nation had. Now, with this in mind, have a look at this verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and what? All these things shall be added to you, what? As well. Think about that. You've got people who were worried about what they were going to eat. And Jesus tells his disciples, guys, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that if you follow me and you follow my teaching, you surrender to the will of God for your life, your concern for food and clothes will be met. Wow. This is why it's really important to realize that Jesus was talking about a specific issue. Because if you take it as a general issue, then all of the issue of poverty in all of the world is the responsibility of the church. Many people interpret it this way. But you do not see the early church feeding those people who were not in the church. Get this. What Jesus says is, my disciples who do my will will have their needs met from the church and through the church. In addition to everything else you need, those needs will be met as well. And isn't this what we see the church doing? Acts chapter 4. One of many examples that I could talk to you about. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Hold on to that, one in heart and mind. Notice the idea of unity. Notice there is no division. Unity. Hold on to that. All the believers were in one heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, and that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. You know why they did this? Because they went back to that Sermon on the Mount and they heard Jesus say, listen, if people come to me and they have need for food and clothes, this is what the church does. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. That's why the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 are so important. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Uh, You know what they say, uh, how are we going to do that, Lord? And he shows them. See, the kingdom manifesto made a, a real difference to the people who were experiencing real concerns in a very divided nation. That's what the kingdom manifesto did. A number of months ago, God spoke a word into my heart so clearly and said, Craig, the America after the election will be more divided than the America before the election. Remind my people of the kingdom manifesto. That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing the the Christmas United series. Church, we need to understand the responsibility that Jesus gives his people in a divided nation. One of the responsibilities he gives us is dealing with the real concerns that real people have. See, in in Jesus' manifesto, disciples address real concerns to stop them becoming worries. Because while concern is unavoidable, worry is unwanted. Notice I've made a difference here, haven't I, between two words. One is concern, the other one is worry. When you look at the New Testament, you begin to get a picture of how important it is in Jesus' manifesto for the church to engage in the real concerns that people have because when we don't, people go astray. A nation goes astray. A church becomes disunited. See, there is a critical difference between being concerned about something and being worried about something. And the question is, what is the difference and why is this so important? Let me take you on a a brief word study. I'm gonna try and keep this as simple as I possibly can. The word worry is this word, merimnate. It means to be anxious, or to care for. The word worry is derived from 
the word care. Now, the word care is a compound word, okay? There are basically two ideas in this word. The first idea is a part, and the second idea is to divide. So worry is care or concern or anxiety that pulls apart. Let's be under no illusion. Concern is biblical. I can point you to many texts. I just want to point you to one. First Corinthians, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. I'm sure there are people in here today who have genuine concerns. You're concerned about your health. You're concerned about your marriage. You're concerned about your prodigal children. You're concerned about your job. You're concerned about your home. You're concerned about how you're going to pay the bill. You're concerned about how you're going to afford to buy groceries over the next week. You're concerned. Concern is biblical. One guy by the name of Wilkins says this. Concern is appropriate when it is directed. Notice this, please. What we do with concern it is active. It, when it is directed to the right things, it's appropriate. When it's kept within boundaries, the right bounds, it's appropriate. And when it causes us to do our proper duty, it's appropriate. Concern is biblical. Concern is appropriate. But while concern is biblical, worry is not. Worry is concern gone astray. Worry is concern running away. I heard a story about a man going in for a procedure, and as he was in the operating theater, he heard the nurse talking to the doctor. The next thing we notice that the man gets up off the, out off the table there, he runs down, the, runs down the corridor, and a security guard stops him and says, sir, what are you doing? And he says, I need to get out of here quick, and the security guard says, why? And the, the patient says, well, this isn't going to go well. And the security guard says, sir, why do you think that? It's very simple, said the man. I, I heard the, the nurse saying, don't worry, everything will be okay. And the security guard is flummoxed. He's thinking, well, sir, that's a good thing, isn't it? All she's trying to do is to reassure you. No, says the patient. She wasn't speaking to me. She was speaking to the doctor. The man makes assumptions that lead him to run. And there, a legitimate concern about a simple procedure turns into a worry that leads him astray. As Jesus was ministering to people, he saw the legitimate concerns that they had, concerns for food, concerns for clothes, and he basically says, in my kingdom, 
Those people who follow me and have these legitimate concerns, and they are seeking my kingdom and my righteousness, will have these concerns met. Don't allow them to become a worry. I'm sure that many of you would say you've moved from having a legitimate concern about your issues to being full-on worried about them. Critical question is, how do we stop it? How do we stop a concern becoming a worry? Because we live between this tension. We know that God can do abundantly more than we ask, think, or even imagine. And there are moments when we try, but oh, there are moments where, like Jesus says in this text, we demonstrate little faith. I love that word. Matthew is the only gospel writer who uses this word, little faith. It's the Greek word oligopistoi, which basically puts faith and little together in one word. What is the difference between faith and doubt? It's little faith. And little faith is faith that isn't activated Faith that isn't used. And when you have a grave concern and you don't act on your faith, you actually become a person of little faith. It's not that you've become faithless. It's not that you've become a doubter. It's that your faith is so little and yet can do so much and you haven't acted on it. So how do we make sure that we don't demonstrate little faith faith that isn't put to work when we have concerns that could become worries. Well, I think there's two things that Jesus tells us. Firstly, he tells us we need to think constructively. If you've got legitimate concerns in here today, God sees the concern. There's no problem with being concerned with them. But they will become a worry if you don't think the right way. Jesus in the passage asks this rhetorical question, doesn't he? Can anyone by worrying add a single hour to your life? And the answer to that is no. No. Jesus goes on and he uses an Irish subjunctive here, which basically means do not worry. Not don't do not worry. Don't even go there, this means. If you know that you cannot add a single hour to your life through worrying, literally this could also be you can add, you can, uh, you know you can't add 18 inches to your height. That's the other way of doing this, okay? If you know you can't do this, then don't even go there. Don't go there. See, Jesus is an inspirational leader. He triggers people's imagination, but he knows what happens to the imagination when there are legitimate concerns. We go there. Jesus says, don't even go there. Do not worry. Don't allow yourself to go there. Because when you go there, worry is care and anxiety that pulls you apart from the inside. Don't go there. So how do we think constructively? Three things. Hallowell has got great insight on this. Again, if this is a big issue for you, go to his book. He basically says, look, you examine your initial response. When you have a concern, a legitimate concern, what is your first response? To fight it or to run with it? What happens in your mind? Do you fight this thing or do you flee with this thing? 
then those what-ifs become that endless amount of opportunities that are as abundant as life itself. Examine your initial response. Secondly, correct any erroneous thoughts or behaviors that you actually see yourself having. Talk with people about this. The people you pray with, I hope you've got people you pray with. That, the reason for that will become clear in a moment. Say, so, hey, when I ask you, when I raise a concern with you that I have, are there any kind of negative patterns to my speech or to my behavior that you think I need to be careful of? Thirdly, restate God's word and God's purpose for your life. Restate it. This is habit forming to do this. All of us have concerns. And because God has given us a mind that he wants us to use to dream big things for him, life and the adversary can come in and cause us to think in unconstructive ways. Don't go there, Jesus says. Don't do it. Secondly, change your emotional state. If you allow your concerns to become worries, get out of the emotional state that you find yourself in. Again, Hallowell will talk about this. How doing something physical, doing something to alter that physical state is really important for dealing with excessive worries. And again, this is the point in this verse, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seeking here is an active pursuit. It is not sitting on your knees and praying. It may well be praying, but it's an active praying, an active wrestling. It means do something. Do something. Change your state. So we stop concerns by, from becoming worrying when we think constructively, when we change our emotional state. But thirdly, this is really important. We change, uh, we prevent rather a concern from becoming a worry when we get connected. Now, this may seem strange, but it shouldn't be. How many of you, when you've been concerned with something, have gone to someone and said, hey, would you pray for me? I I'm really concerned. Some of us will say, I'm really worried about this. Let me ask you a question. Who do you go to when you talk like that? Do you go to someone that you don't know? Do you walk up to any stranger and say, excuse me, would you pray for me? I'm really worried. Now, see, what Jesus is doing in this verse is he's not offering a crowd just this kind of general reassurance. Oh, folks, I know that you're concerned about your food and your clothes, but don't worry. God's got this. Everything will be okay. Isn't it true to say that when, when we go through hardship and other people know about it, the last thing we often want is for someone to come up to us, tap us on the shoulder and say, it's okay, everything will be okay. Right? It may well be true, but we don't want to hear that right now. See, the point is this. this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't seek to reassure people. He seeks to connect. To connect with people and to connect people. I think about those 
concerns that I've had in my life, ministry. And what God has done is basically brought me into a relationship with people that when I share my concerns with them, their word of reassurance means something because I know they have my back and I know they love me. There have been periods in my ministry when God has provided inspirational, supernatural experience. I've shared with you before how early in ministry I had a concern about a leader in the church, and I was wrestling with this, prayed about this before I took a trip. I went on an international trip, and in walks someone that I've never seen before, never seen since, gives me a letter to the church about this person that I was worried about. God does that. God sometimes will do things incredible through someone you never know, but that's the exception, not the rule. Other times in my ministry, when I've been really worried, really heavy laden, really burdened, invariably, I would pick up the phone. One time in my ministry, every single day for about seven weeks, I picked up the phone and I just said, hey, I'm really worried about this. Will you pray with me? Every day. Why? Why did I do that? Because I knew that this person would reassure me, and that reassurance meant something. Why? Because I meant something to them. See, connectedness actually makes us feel that we're a part of something far bigger than ourselves. Jesus' solution to worry isn't to offer reassurance. Jesus' solution to worry is to offer connection. Folks, after the election, many of you are not as worried as you were before the election. But after this election, many people in our nation are more worried than they were before the election. So what does God want his people to do? What does he want us to do? Stand up and assure people that those of us who voted red are not racist and misogynists? Well, that's reassurance. That doesn't work. That's like kind of getting reassurance about our plight from someone who doesn't know us and really isn't that interested. I want you to see something. I want you to see how, how, how Jesus envisages the, the church functioning. And, and to do this, I, I want you to jump with me into 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this passage about the, the church being the body of Christ. And I want you to look at this, these words. On the contrary, Paul says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispens- are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. Now, here we go. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be, what? No division. What is worrying me? Care that divides that there should be no division in the body, but that its part should have what? Equal concern. Do you notice this? Concern and division in the same passage. 
This is what the body does. There should be equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Do you know what God is saying? God is saying, listen, when you are surrounded by people who have concerns, don't allow their concern to become a worry. And as the body, the way we stop that is we connect. We connect. See, when a body is divided, whether it's the church, whether it's a nation, true believers in Jesus Christ honor the Jesus manifesto and they connect with the concerned. When we don't, the body, the nation, is pulled apart. The reality of history is God's people never took Jesus' manifesto seriously enough. And what happened? The nation was divided, and AD 70, it fell. Why? Because there wasn't connection, there wasn't concern. Hallowell says this, if there is one remedy I would recommend above all others in combating worry, it is this, increase the connectedness in your life. In doing so, you will increase your feeling of strength and power and greatly reduce your sense of vulnerability. There is strength in numbers. Church, united we stand. In this nation, united we stand. Where there is concern, legitimate concern, the Jesus Manifesto says, step in. Live out. Connect with those people that are concerned. Love on those people who are worried. And when we do, our words of reassurance will mean something. Central exists to connect people to God, to others, and with the mission of Jesus. Our mission statement, we say, is to amplify hope and life. It isn't to amplify anxiety and despair. I hope you believe that Jesus offers hope to a worried people. If you're here this morning, I want you to know that Jesus has legitimate concern about your welfare. And he wants you to connect with the body of Christ and have those needs met. But you need to take a step into that. You need to be willing, firstly, if you're here and you've never had a relationship with Jesus, you need to start there. Say, God, this all begins by me connecting with you because you're the one who takes my concern, my weight, my sin on your shoulders. I need you. But then it needs to go on for there. Too many Christians all across the world, and especially in the nation where we, nations where we can worship God freely, just think that it's enough to come to church on a Sunday and live out life through the week. It's not enough. It may be enough for you, but it may not be enough for the person sitting next to you. Connect to other people. And thirdly, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have to connect to his mission for the world. And in this season, folks, here's what it means. God is going to judge us, not by how many people as a church we manage to sit in here every week. God will evaluate our effectiveness by how well we connect with the needs and the legitimate concerns of people who are so far from God. My encouragement to us today, 
Let's go from this place and let's be the church. Let's offer hope to a very troubled people. As we sang today, people need the life that God offers. We are those life givers in Jesus' name. Let's go be the church. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I pray that as this message has gone forth, that those with legitimate concerns in this place will just arrest their mind, reel it in, and just listen to your words where you say, don't go there. Father, I pray that in this moment, your Holy Spirit will come and he would speak that word of peace and reassurance that makes sense and means something because we're connected to you. But Father, in the same way, you've called us to be the body of Jesus. And that means we don't allow legitimate concerns to pull people apart. We connect. Father, I just pray for those who feel alone in their trouble, that you would place people around them. I pray, Father, that we, even where we sit today, would notice those people who sit around us every week that we've never spoken to. Help us to connect. But Father, more importantly than that, may we as your people connect with the mission that you have given to us as your church. And in this nation, in a troubled world, God, send us out of here with the willingness to connect a lost, a broken, and a hurting people to the body of Christ and to the message of the gospel. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Church, very simple encouragement for you today. Go be the church. Connect with a world that desperately needs the life and the hope that you have. If you need prayer, the altars are open. Other than that, go in grace, go in peace, and uh, we'll see you Thanksgiving morning on here on Thursday. Have a great week. God bless.